and it's my joy to bring God's word uh, to you this morning. Uh, we're continuing through uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're in uh, the end of Luke 17. If you have a Bible and like to turn uh, there, feel free to do that. The words are also going to be posted uh, behind me to, for you to follow along. This is Luke 17, uh, beginning at verse 20. Uh, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, this is Jesus, answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look here, it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. For they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Or likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, In that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding it together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse did, the vultures will gather. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as your word goes out, God, that our hearts and minds would know your love and grace that you've shown to us in Jesus, to be reminded, Lord, of the mercy, of the deep love and faithfulness you've shown to us, and that we would then turn to our neighbors, to those in our communities, in our spaces, and love them with the same love with which you've showed us. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. In preparing for the sermon, I started reading uh, a play. You may be familiar with it uh, from your English class I took at one point. It's called Waiting for Godot. It's an old play by Samuel Beckett. Uh, it has kind of a timeless aspect to it. There's only a handful of characters in the story. Uh, two men by the name of uh, Vladimir and uh, Estragon. Uh, in the story, there's really no uh, known setting. There's just a road. There's only two acts in the story. These two men are waiting for a man named Godot. 
You don't know much about this character. You don't even really know why they're waiting for him. They even don't quite know why. But they dialogue a lot, and there's a lot of conversation that just goes in and out of just absurd things, funny things, things of meaning, and even of life and death. But interlaced in those conversations, there's these reminders that one of them chimes in and says, oh, we're waiting for this man, Godot, to come. We're waiting for this man to arrive. There's two other characters in there. Uh, Their names are uh, 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 Lucky and Pazzo. Uh, Pazzo is a a master of, of some kind of prominence and status, and he owns this slave named Lucky. And there's all this mistreatment between the two. Pazzo is, is uh, abusive towards Lucky. And Lucky is silent throughout the story. And then the play ends and Godot never arrives. He doesn't show up. And there, it ends with this like cliffhanger of them still waiting for this man to come. Not knowing why they're waiting. Not knowing really what the purpose is. But it, it's, it's kind of driving the play. But it leaves you with just, just this feeling of like the, the cyclical nature of life. You know, there's, there's suffering, there's mistreatment, there's, there's power differentials. There's, there's these moments of kind of absurdity. Some people have a sense of purpose. They're waiting for something, something to change. But nothing seems to, to be different. It just Life just continues to go on. And it leaves you wondering, is it ever going to change? Are these men ever going to experience the arrival of this man, Godot? And what's going to happen when he arrives? I bring that up not because I'm a literature scholar by any means. I'm a novice at best. But the story kind of gives us an example of something that Jesus is talking about here. Because we as Christians, if you're a Christian here, we believe that there's a day that's coming in our future. And this event, this day when it happens, is going to fundamentally, fundamentally change our lives as we know it. It's a day that's going to just overturn all the suffering and pain and tragedy and death that we experience here and now. And it's a day that's set. It's in our future. But there's also this, this aspect in reality that we live in this world of suffering, We live in this world of pain. We live in this world where there's this thing that we call, and the Bible calls sin, that we're still wrestling with and dealing with. And we can wonder and and begin to ask, kind of like these men in this story asking, is this day ever going to come? Is it ever going to arrive? And what's going to happen when it does? Jesus is going to speak about this day. But he's also kind of kind of leave this conversation with somewhat of a cliffhanger. It's not so much if this day is going to come, because he's just basing the reality that it is. This day is going to come. It's not a question of when, which some of these characters in this story, in this account are asking. But more of what does it mean to you? What's going to happen to you when it does? What does this matter, this day that's in your future, what does it matter to you? What's going to happen when it arrives? Because regardless of where we stand on this, whether you believe in Jesus, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, this day is coming, and it matters for all of us. 
It means something for all of us, and it's going to fundamentally change our lives as we know it. But what do we do about it? What does it mean for us? And how, do we, how does that change, that reality of this day coming, change how we act and how we think here and now? How does it affect our lives here as we wait for that day to arrive? Two things we're going to be talking about. First, a suffering king. It's the first thing we need to face and think about when we think about this, this future day that's coming. And Jesus gives light to that here. The second thing is a coming kingdom. Jesus in this text uses, and the Bible uses this royal language to talk about this day that's arriving. It's called the kingdom of God that's coming. It's this this time and place where God is going to rule and reign. And in that, he's going to rid this world of all those things we've talked about, of suffering, of pain, of sin, death, Satan himself. All that is going to be rid of when God finally brings in his kingdom. But first, Jesus points us to the reality. We need to think about who is the king of this kingdom. And what does he do for us? There are two characters in in this story, or two groups in this story that Jesus is addressing. They're pretty familiar to us at this point, if you've been with us up to this this point of the, the account. The first is the Pharisees, and the second is the disciples. But in both of those conversations, there are similar themes and things that Jesus is going to tell them. The Pharisees... You may be very familiar with them at this point. If you're new here or visiting, the Pharisees are the religious elite of Jesus' day. These are the men who prided themselves in following after the Torah, following after the law of God, felt like they were doing a pretty good job with that, felt like they had a sense of status and privilege, and they raised themselves up in that above other groups of people that they felt were inferior You know, they knew the Old Testament very well. And so they had an understanding or an idea of this kingdom of God that is talked about in the Old Testament. God promises that there's a king who's coming. You know, Chad just read Psalm 89. This idea of a king and the reality of a king coming and establishing his kingdom. But the Pharisees misunderstood what that meant for them. And who this king was. And what this king was going to do. It's interesting how this story comes after an event. We, we looked at last week. It's the healing of a, of a Samaritan leper. Which if, you were, if, if you're aware of, of the status of someone who's, who's both a Samaritan and a leper, they're an outcast in that day. Just about every single category. But this man, the Samaritan man, knew who Jesus was and knew why Jesus came. Of anybody else, he understood the truth that was needed for him. And that was that there's this inner darkness in his heart that needed to be cleansed. He needed to be healed and saved, and that's why Jesus came. He understood that. And it's almost like the Pharisees are just completely changing the subject after this. This event happens. The Pharisees just want to talk about this intellectual, you know, conceptual idea of the kingdom of God. But they misunderstood what that meant for them. 
They believed and thought that because of, of, of their privilege, because of their place, because of how well they were obeying or thought they were obeying God's word and God's law, they had a special place in God's eyes. They had special privilege and blessing before the Lord. And all these other groups of people needed help or needed to be taught or needed an example. And they were that example. And it's interesting, of all the groups of people that are around Jesus, Jesus is constantly reminding them and showing them in sometimes real direct and brash ways of their blindness. They're actually spiritually blind to the reality that's going on and there's actually this deep corruption that's in their hearts that needs to be dealt with first before they even think about what's coming for them, this kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus says here. They're looking at at the future of this this event they think is is coming for them and they believe is really just going to raise their status even more. They believe it was just going to going to provide even more blessing for them. But the reality was what Jesus is saying here is they're missing what's right in front of them. Because Jesus says the kingdom of God is not something to be observed. You know, the, the, the Pharisees believed that the kingdom of God was going to come with all these cosmic signs, these just miraculous, you know, unexplainable uh, miracles in their mind, what that looked like for them. But what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's actually standing right in front of you. The kingdom of God is here. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, up to this point, in in different parts of Luke, Jesus comes as a king. Jesus identifies himself and is identified by others as that king who has come. He's that promised king that the Old Testament keeps talking about and keeps pointing his people, God's people to. In the beginning of Luke, when Jesus uh, is, is being born, it says he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom... There will be no end. There's a scene in in the Gospel of Luke. John the Baptist is doing his ministry, but he's in prison. This is a man who is preparing the way of this promised Messiah. And he sends messengers to Jesus, and he asks them, are are you really the one? You know, this is is the man who's who's ministering for Jesus and and is doubting, wondering, are you really the one that's, that's promised, that we've been waiting for? For millennia. And Jesus says, he he tells someone to go and tell John the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. These are the things, these are the evidences that the king has arrived to bring about something so much greater than even the Pharisees realized, to uproot these cosmic and demonic forces that were over God's people. But the Pharisees didn't get what they really need, what they really needed. They needed to be aware of the corruption that was in their heart. They needed to be aware of the need that they themselves had of being saved and forgiven by this king. 
Because the reality is, friends, Scripture talks about how God is king, Jesus has come as king, but Scripture also talks about that because of what the Bible calls sin, because of this darkness that is inside of our hearts, we're actually enemies of God. If nothing is done about it, we're actually enemies of this king. And the Pharisees didn't realize that. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe that they were, in fact, enemies of God because of the things that they were doing. They believed that they had done enough to be in right status and position in God's eyes just by their own works. But Jesus is saying that doesn't deal with the corruption that is in your heart that brings you to war against God. But it's interesting, this king has come here in this moment in this account, this is the king who's come. This is Jesus. But he hasn't come to judge. He hasn't come to destroy. He's come to suffer. In this point in, in, in Jesus' journey, these are called the travel narratives. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. And Luke is constantly pointing ahead to that. And here, Jesus talks about, first... This is verse 25. He, that's this king that's promised, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is the king that has come to suffer. As we are at war with God because of the darkness that is in our heart, instead of God destroying us, what did he do? Jesus came. God came, became a man to suffer for us to take and become an enemy of God so that you and I, who put our trust and faith in him, might be welcomed in his kingdom, might be known and loved by him, might be received by him and have hope for the life that is to come, for this kingdom that is coming. He came to bring peace between us and God. You know, that comes with understanding of how you and I don't deserve to be part of this kingdom. You and I don't deserve to be welcomed and, and, and loved by God because of this darkness. But the reality, friends, is that this king of this kingdom has come and has offered us the hope and life and peace that we can have with God. But he did that by suffering for us. He did by th that by taking the penalty that you and I deserve. But nothing can change that for us. That reality that Jesus has won for you. And if you're trusting in that king that has come for you, that reality of being a member of God's kingdom, being a member of God's family, with all the rights and privileges that come with that, are yours. Nothing can change that for you. But it's putting your trust and faith in the king that's come. It's putting your hope in the one who's come for you. You know, the Pharisees needed to forfeit their pride and their preconceived notions about what they wanted this king to do for them. Jesus is constantly reminding them and showing them 
They need to submit to him first. They need to submit to the king who's come for them. They need to forfeit their pride and feeling like they were loved by God by their own works and recognize the need that they had to be saved by this king. You know, maybe you've lived your life expecting God to do things to improve your circumstances. You come to him only when you need him. Maybe you've lived thinking that Jesus is here to make your life comfortable or give you things that you want. Or maybe you lived under the overwhelming pressures to fit in, to measure up, to do enough, to try harder, or even thinking that you're actually a pretty decent person and a pretty good person. But the reality is, friends, all of us, no matter how religious we might be, no matter how faithful we are in attending church, doing the right things, all of us are in need of this king. And the king has come. The king has come for you. And if you're trusting in him, you are loved and known by God no matter what. And there's hope for you in this kingdom that's coming for you. In this day that Jesus is talking about that is coming, this hope that we have of life being changed forevermore is a reality that's coming. And it's for you. That day is for you and it is good news for you. But still, that means something for us as Christians. Because we know that. We affirm that. We might even know the, the, the scriptures that help support that. But then we go into the week. We have all these responsibilities. We have all these things that are calling our name. We have all these things we need to do. And we can just get so caught up in the monotony and just cyclical pattern of life that we can forget that maybe this is all there is. Maybe this life is all that there is. And so I just need to make the most of it. I just need to make the most of, of, of this life here and now. It's interesting, Jesus talks about this future day uh, that's coming. And he says it's going to happen in a moment. He uses two Old Testament uh, uh, texts or Old Testament accounts where God judges uh, the people in the world. Uh, there's the account of the flood. If you're familiar with, with that account, God promised to bring uh, a flood to judge uh, the people because they were acting just uh, uh, wickedly towards him. But he promised Noah he would build an ark and everyone who would go into the ark would be saved. And he talks about uh, Lot and the destruction of the city called Sodom and Gomorrah. A similar thing. God promised to bring judgment on this city because of the, of the wickedness that was going on in that city. But he saves Lot and his family. It's really interesting. Jesus talks about these two accounts. But he doesn't talk about you know, the, the, the wickedness and debauchery and all, you know, all the terms and categories we could put to that. And it's not, though, that, that Jesus is denying those things as the reason for God's judgment. But as this impending doom is coming, he talks about how the people are just doing these cyclical, you know, things of life. They're getting married. They're eating. They're drinking. They're sleeping. They're working. They're buying. They're selling. All things that 
all, every one of us participate in. And these things aren't inherently wrong. We ourselves, as, as, as believers who are trusting in Jesus, who are, who are still waiting for this kingdom to come, have responsibilities. If you're married, you have responsibilities to your spouse. If you have kids, you have responsibilities. If you have a job, you have responsibilities. All those things are good. But Jesus points to those things as these people who were doing these things were so engrossed in them that they weren't considering what was coming for them. They weren't thinking about this impending judgment that was coming for them. So they just got so engrossed in the cyclical pattern of life, the things that we just do day in and day out. They weren't thinking about what this day, this event, this judgment meant for them and what they were supposed to do about it. Instead, they just got so involved in just the things that were literally about to be destroyed. And that's something for us to think about. Because you and I, like I said, are, are, have responsibilities in this life to do. And those are good things. Having a family, that's a good thing. Having a home, that's a great privilege. Having a job, we have responsibilities to provide. All those things are good. But when we take those things and start living in a way that that's the ultimate thing, that's the, that, that's the fundamental thing. That's, that's my ultimate purpose. It's just making the most of this life. We start to get distracted. And we start to try to build these little kingdoms in this life that are really only here temporarily. All these things that God's given us, they're gifts, but they're temporary. Why? Because we suffer, because there's sin, because there's death. If this stuff was just never-ending... What hope would we have? I mean, what hope would we have of, of what's after this? You know, with all the pain and suffering that you and I experience, it always reminds us and, and makes us wonder what's, what's coming after this. When is this going to be over? But sometimes we can get just so distracted in the monotony and daily routine of life, we can forget the great reality that stands in front of us, that's coming for us. That's so much better than anything we can experience here on this earth. But we can live in a way that reflects the belief that this life is all that there is. Sometimes we don't even realize it. I need to make a name and legacy for myself here. That's my fundamental purpose no matter what. I need to have financial success and stability, no matter what. I need to have political rights and privileges, no matter what. I need the right person in office. I need to be liked or approved by my peers. I need to have the right career. I need my kids to be a certain way. Again, some of these things are good things, but it's the value we place on those things. And Jesus says there's something so much greater for us. His reference to Lot's wife, going back to one of the accounts, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, when Lot and his family were being taken out, Lot's wife is said to have turned and looked back at the city that was being destroyed. 
and she was turned into a pillar of salt. And that sounds, it, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow, but the reality is what the text shows is that she was looking back and longing to what was being destroyed. She wasn't willing to trust in where God was leading them and the life that God had for them. Instead, was looking back at the life she had that was literally about to be burned up with longing to go back and hold on to those things. See, friends, when we invest everything in this life now, we're going to hold tight to it. We're not going to be willing to let go of it. We're not going to be willing to allow God to use these things for his glory, which sometimes means he takes it away, which sometimes means it's for a time and a purpose. But when we put all that value and purpose in those things, we hold on to it for ourselves. We hoard. We don't share. We don't allow God to work in and through our circumstances and experiences. Because the reality is, friends, God is preparing us for something so much greater than anything we can experience in this life. Which means our jobs are temporary, our homes are temporary, even our families are temporary. There's purpose, there's things we need to do, but we're ultimately to hold all of those things before the Lord, to use those here and now for his glory as we wait for this day to come. It's going to be so much greater and more amazing than anything we can experience in this life. Jesus gives us a principle that we've talked about before of what it means to live in a way where we're thinking about what's coming that's for us. We're thinking about the eternal life that is ahead of us. He talks about how one, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. It's this principle of living in light of what's ahead of us, of laying down our lives, laying down what God has given us as gifts, and being willing to offer those things, to share those things, to love others with the same love that Jesus and God has shown to us. Extending that love using the gifts and resources, using the things that God has given us for his glory as we wait. And that means also bringing others into this privilege of being a child of God. Because what you, you and I are experiencing now is we're loved and accepted by God no matter what. And we have hope. This day that's coming is to give us hope not fear. If we're trusting in the Lord, it's to give us hope. Because this day is so much more glorious than what we can experience. And all the hardship and challenge and difficulty that we experience now is going to be done away with. And we get to tell people about that. We get to tell people about the life that they can, they can experience now and the greater life that they will experience after now, after this life. It's a wonderful reality that's ahead of us that we can invite people into. Jesus helps us see. He shows us how to move from being hyper-focused on the things that are temporary to being hopeful in the things that are forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you 
Lord, that you've come, that you've come to save us. That's a reality that is, that is still true for us who are trusting in you. No matter what our week has looked like, no matter what our day has looked like, you've come for us and we are yours because of Jesus. And nothing can strip us away from that. Lord, you've also promised, God, that you're coming back. You're coming back to rescue us from this life. As sometimes we feel like just with the cyclical patterns of life, the experiences we go through, we can begin to wonder and question, is that day ever going to arrive? But it is. And it's great hope for us. It's gonna be a day of salvation. So help us, Lord, to live in such a way where we're anticipating our future and being willing to give, to surrender, to sacrifice for others for the sake of your name. Because Jesus, that's what you did for us. You came down and you sacrificed yourself so that we can have life, so that we can have joy. Help us, Lord, to bring others into this reality, to tell others the great wonder and truth and mercy that you've shown to us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.